Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. My panel, we've got economic commentator Ruth Lee, Alan Miller, who's the co-founder of the campaign group Together Declaration, and Jeevan Sander, who's a political economist at King's College in London. Good evening to you three. And you know the drill on Tubes and Co by now, don't you? It's not just about us and our thoughts. It's about you at home as well. What's on your mind tonight? Get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at GB News. Don't forget, of course, if you have not already, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, you can watch us live. You might be already. Good evening if you are. Uh, you can watch us back. You can download our app. Uh, we've got a podcast. We're on the radio. We are everywhere. And as I always say, good evening to you wherever you are on this Friday night. You're very, very welcome. Now, let's talk wages, shall we? Because, you know, unless you've been living under a rock, you will be familiar by now that pretty much everyone, uh, everywhere, it seems, is asking for a pay rise. Of course, we've been talking long and hard about the strikes that are about to cripple much of this country. They want their wages to go up. Uh, many people are saying, by the way, that wages should be going up in line with inflation. But I think we're at about 9%. We're going to be going much, much higher. Uh, some people are worried about potential recession on the way. Boris Johnson has got involved and he's issued a bit of a warning. So if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, right, I'm going to psych myself up this weekend. On Monday, I'm going in. I'm going to tell my boss, this is it. I want more money. Boris Johnson is going to warn you to be careful what you wish for. Because apparently, if we get ourselves into a wage spiral, the consequence of that will be higher and higher and higher interest rates, which, of course, will bring misery to many Jeevan Sander, you are an economist. What a treat for us to have your insight on this topic. I remember when you was on uh, this show probably a couple of weeks ago now, one of the things that you were actually talking about was interest rate rises mm -hmm. and the fact that you were saying that we were going to be seeing them, and indeed we have been seeing them actually. Um, do you think Boris Johnson is right on this? No, he's completely wrong. I mean, first of all, it's morally bankrupt and economically illiterate. Let's start with the moral bankruptcy. Get for off man, your fence, Jeevan. For, <laughs> for a man on 164k a year to say that people should be asking for pay rises at this time in the country when 40% are struggling to pay the bills, 40% are cutting back on food, 40% can't afford to save, 2.6 million kids going hungry, one in seven adults going hungry, and Boris Johnson saying to them, do not ask for a pay rise. That is morally bankrupt. On the economic literacy side, every single person's country will, of course, ask for a pay rise. They will bargain for the highest wages possible. It's not like they can sit there and coordinate with 20 million other people to ensure that they're not going to ask that pay rise. It's absolutely not an effective way to get down inflation. He should be trying to support families and yes, the Bank of England should be getting a grip on inflation as well. But what do you think there's any logic? I mean, this is your kind of expertise. Uh, is there any logic in, uh, I was just about to tell you how interest rate rises are intended to quash inflation, but you tell us, you know, this interest rates as a mechanism, <laughs> that is intended, isn't it, to ensure that people like, have less disposable income, etc., to help with inflation, is it not? That's exactly right. So the, the interest rates rise are there to quash inflation, as you yep. say. So the interest rates are the price of money. When interest rates are low, there's kind of a lot of money being created. When interest rates go higher, the price of money goes up 
and therefore there's less money and also less inflation. It is for the Bank of England to sort that out. And on the other side as well, the Bank of England also printed around £900 billion in cash for quantitative easing. It's time to end that. It's time to bring that money back and burn the cash. But if people, if you've got on the one hand, if I think of a, a homeowner, so mm -hmm. I don't know, they've come to the end of their, their fixed product, their interest rates have gone up, so mm -hmm. they by definition have got less disposable income. So then people might say, well, okay, on one sense, very not pleasant for the homeowner, but on one sense, economically, that's at least going to reduce potentially demand. You know, surely they're then going to counter that if you're then giving people more disposable income when it comes to interest rates, by mm -hmm. the way. Are we not? So like, in terms of the... The Bank of England's job is to deal with inflation. And actually, as we're seeing now, inflation does harm everybody. And yes, it's true those interest rate rises will harm disposable, disposable income of homeowners. Now, when the Treasury puts money back in people's pockets, that's for them to try and help out with the cost of living crisis. But if we're really concerned about that and that spending, then actually the government can also tax on the other side to kind of balance it out. So there is a way to do this, but it is kind of a fine path to thread. And what a treat, because to the left of me, not only have I got the handsome Alan Miller, who I'll come to in just a second, but I've also got the expert, uh, the economic expert as well. Ruth, good evening to you, sir. What do you think? Do you agree with Jeevan or not? Not quite. Oh. I think that's the nicest way of putting it, because I don't wish to offend him. Oh. But no, joking apart, I think Boris Johnson and the Bank of England are very, are very right, um, to be concerned about a wage price spiral because I do remember it from the 1970s and it is utterly damaging. And also, I think, you know, when Boris Johnson was talking about that, if, if there is the wage price spiral, then it will lead to higher interest rates and we don't want that. And I think, again, he's right. And if, as I say, it's not just Boris Johnson that's concerned about the wage price spiral. It is also the Bank of England. And the governor, that is Andrew Bailey, has been saying for several weeks now that if people just push for higher wages, of course, he will have to put up interest rates. There's not much he can do about the increase in energy prices. I mean, that, the bank can't do very much about that. They can't do very much about the increase in fuel prices. But at least by putting up interest rates and dampening activity, they hope to dampen the wage price spiral, which they do regard as very damaging. So I would say that as a first point. And you mentioned, to... you mentioned the 70s, by the way. Uh, just whilst we're talking, I'll just pop onto the screen, actually. A couple of graphics I think we've got from the 70s. But some viewers... Uh, Ruth, they won't be f as familiar as what you are in terms of when you're referring to the 70s. So just very briefly explain to people what did happen in the 70s. I'm showing you, by the way, inflation. You can see the spike there. That was the 70s. But Well, I was working in the Treasury in the early 70s, believe it or not. And then the mid-70s, I was in the Civil Service College. Price inflation. Was that your fault then, this massive that's, spike that I'm seeing that's there? That's probably one of my diagrams. Right. But, I mean, joking apart, inflation peaked at about 25%. I remember having a pay rise of 30%, believe it or not. I think it was in 1975. And you'd go to a shop and they didn't even have printed printed menus anymore for the prices. They'd just pencil them in. It was like, it was, it was, it was inflation and the wage price priorities. So we don't want a repetition of that. No, we do not. But if I could make a couple of other points. Actually, before you make that, a couple of other, let me just hear from, bring Alan in for a second, then I'll come back to you for your, for your next point. Alan? Well, I agree with it. It's illiteracy. I also think it's another I word, which is ironic. And I think it's also another I were, which is insulting. Let us remember that we're in this position specifically because of the last, let's say, 26 months, specifically lockdowns and restrictions and impositions that have occurred, that we've now got a cost of living crisis. And people may want to say, well, let's not look back. But let's also contextualise this, because that's one of the reasons, exacerbated by other things internationally. 
But let's look back and be honest. In the last three decades, Britain's uh, capacity to develop its wage growth has been minimal. It's been sluggish. We've got a zombie economy with zombie companies. We don't allow them to fail. We don't reinvest in training uh, for people that might lose their jobs. So there's a risk-averse approach that we've got. And the chickens are coming home to roost. I actually think that we can have real huge wealth creation for everyone, where everyone gets enormously benefited higher wages, and we don't have the prospect of doom that we're faced with. But that takes resolution. It means that some companies are allowed to fail. We stopped this quantitative easing, printing of money non-stop that we saw through uh, the last 26 months and prior to that. And we saw all the bailouts. So where's this money tree all coming being resolved? We've got to get back to productive uh, wealth creation where everyone benefits and earns more uh, and not have this dichotomy between one or the other. You was nodding along, Ruth? Well, um, where does one start? I think the first thing is, is that I do agree with Alan that with lockdowns, you just have... And then when the economy started to recover after lockdown, you find that demand outstripped supply. And, of course, that's why you have the big increases in energy prices and oil prices. And that's been exacerbated by the war in sure, Ukraine. Yeah. And these are, in a way, that's an exogenous development, which actually, as I say, the Bank of England cannot do very much about. Um, but, I, I mean, and I would like to think that we would have all this activity to get the economy going. I don't agree, disagree with you about that. But let's just think of two other things and what, what, what can actually the government do about it in the near term. For a start, it is worth reminding ourselves that Sunak has already brought out two major packages for easing the cost of living crisis, which have been biased towards the lower paid, but not entirely for the lower paid. There was the one in February, which he discussed again at the spring statement, and then he came out with quite a big package, 15 billion odd of help in, March, in May. So he's done quite a lot. But what I would like to see, and I think this was discussed in the previous programme, actually, was why not actually go for these prices increases directly. In other words, look at the energy prices and cut that, cut the green levies that are perhaps, what, 10% of the total bill. Look at the fuel prices, because I think with fuel, with fuel prices now, about 45% is tax. Why not cut But with all due respect to your expertise, right, and I don't mean to be rude, but to me, this is not rocket science, right? Well, I agree so, with you. But so then, I, so then it makes me think, well, they must... When I say they, obviously, I'm talking about the government. The government must know this and they must, they must sit there and go, right, we're taking pretty much half when it comes to fuel on duty, so why don't we look to tinker it? It's not a difficult policy, so why well, are they not doing it? Well, you and I better go and knock on the Treasury door and say, come on, because, I mean, Sunak, actually, he, he, if you remember, he cut... 5p a litre of mm. fuel prices in the spring statement, because I remember I was in the studio with you at the time. Well, 5p sort of disappeared now, <laughs> given the fuel prices. But as I say, I understand that tax is about 45% of fuel prices in petrol and, and, uh, and diesel. 45%, that is a lot. Mm. I mean, they could afford to cut the duty further, in my opinion, and they could afford to cut but, the VAT. But and even you would immediately have a knock-on effect on inflation. But, Jeevan, it's not just the government that are not doing this. Mm. I've been quite surprised um, not to hear opposition parties suggesting this. So then it makes me think, but it's not rocket science, so why isn't anyone... It wanting to or suggesting this policy. So we had, I think, there was direct support to households. I do think actually fuel duty is certainly a cut we should look at. The worry is, look, as everyone else is kind of appreciating, people don't really feel it at the pumps. And actually the right thing to do from my perspective is to get money in their pockets. But certainly as well, also, yeah, if you can get energy prices down at this point in time, it's not something bad to consider, but the government, of course, would have to But you would, if that. you did a... So if we're... I mean, let's round up the numbers. <laughs> so obviously, don't start everyone getting in touch saying it's not 
50%, because I know it's not 50%, but for simplistic reasons, if we just round it up and say, you know, pretty much 50 pence, 50% is duty, uh, taxes, whatever you want to call it. If they took a big dent of that, say half of that, mm. you would feel that at the point, you would. So then this is what I can't get my head around. It's not rocket science. So why is it not either being proposed by the government or suggested by the opposition? My suspicion is that actually, like, they think the cut would be... The amount it raises in revenue is too large to touch, is my suspicion. And I think on the other side of the end, people won't feel it enough. I would also say that, like... I completely appreciate everyone is feeling this. Like, in London, we're lucky. We have lots of public transport, but I know 60% of people need to use a car. Actually, on the longer term as well, getting more public transport is key. Alan? Well, I'll just say another thing. Uh, firstly, we need to be uh, far more robust in our adventurousness around energy uh, and independence. We've got lots of waves here, tidal wave technology, as well as nuclear and a range of other issues. But there's also the fact that people don't want to touch this green issue and that needs to be addressed and it's not being honestly debated. The other thing is, when Boris talks about this bricks and benefits situation, uh, what we need is a robust house building uh, plan that has some government backing, some bonds and others for big industry, but where industry then gets behind it, create new jobs, pay people more money, create wonderful, beautiful uh, developments all across the country, around the coastal regions. We have 164 of them that need development and investment and regeneration. And let's get house building, let's get young people to be able to afford those places. Let's have a situation where we have a robust, dynamic situation. We've been through a terrible couple of years. Whatever anyone thinks about that, Let's look forward with the best foot forward and have some ambition and scope rather than always about restrictions and impositions. It's utterly insulting that we should be presented with this. Well, Bob in Sheffield, just before I come back to you, Ruth, Bob in Sheffield says, Michelle, I am a self-employed business owner and in order to keep my business afloat, I have not drawn any wages since Jan January, due in part to cost inflation. He says, I cannot put up my prices because my clients simply work pay. My input costs have continued to rise and I have not had a pay rise for over a decade. In fact, he says it's just the opposite. Pay decreases in the private sector are not uncommon. Well, that's right. And I, I think Alan has, has mentioned the green issues, and I suspect this is why the government is so reluctant just to cut the duty and the VAT on fuel, because, of course, they're meant to be weaning us off these horrible fossil fuels. But uh, for my money, I think, and as I've said before, you know, I, I think the whole net zero um, policy is, is a terrible distraction. And given the fact that we're 1% of <laughs> man-made glo uh, global emissions, uh, the carbon dioxide emissions, I mean, it is it's pretty futile what we're doing. I think we just have to put net zero on one side and actually say to ourselves, we've got to, got to put the economy first. And we really, really seriously, that, is, that should be the priority. And, Javen, I mean... How long do you think all this has got the potential to go on for? Because when I hear you say stuff like, oh, you know, maybe the, the government, for example, is worried about the tax revenues from a cut in duty. In my head, I automatically think, right, OK, well, let's do a temporary one. Then maybe six months to get us back on our feet. But would such temporary measures, six months here and six months there on this break or that break, would they make a difference? Or is this a much more longer term problem? Yeah, I am sorry. I don't have... Any good news here on that front? I know the OECD thinks oil prices will rise again next year, I think by around 20%. We're expecting inflation to also kind of still be high next year. 
I'm sorry to say it's not going to be a difficult year this year, although this year we think will be the worst of it. Next year is also going to be tough as well. This is going to be, uh, it is a once in a lifetime cost of living crisis. This is something I've certainly never seen before in my life. And so it's just going to be tough. I am sorry about that. So the early 70s, we had an oil price crisis and that mm. triggered off the wild rich price spiral. But I think we, I did hint at the war in Ukraine being a serious factor here. And who knows how that's going to develop? I think we just simply do not know. But it's been a major, major import into the increase in oil and gas prices. This is the problem. Yeah, which, as you say, that's not going to end anytime soon. Chris says, hang about, when we're talking about wages, never mind that. What about pensioners? Uh, their income simply cannot keep pace with inflation. Uh, Chris is saying, we're living off just my husband's pension and what's happening is absolutely terrifying for us. Um, Nigel's saying, when it comes to uh, deposit accounts... Uh, if rates go up, interest rates we're obviously talking about, uh, will this be passed through to savings account? Nigel says those that do have savings need our turn of some good luck. I mean, I'd say don't hold your breath, Nigel. Uh, I don't know about you, but if you've got a, a, a mortgage with the bank, it seems to take me about two seconds to get a text message from my bank when there's been an interest rate rise telling me that, oh, if you've got a mortgage, you know, be prepared, your interest rate's going to go up. If I've got a savings account with the same bank, I don't seem to get the same text in the same speed. In fact, at all, actually, saying, be prepared, uh, your interest on your saving, uh, savings account is coming up. So, Nigel, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't hold your breath too much if I were you. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co. With me, Michelle Jubery. Just a quick reminder as to who's keeping me company tonight. We've got economic commentator Ruth Lee, Alan Miller, who's the co-founder of the Campaign Group Together Declaration, and Jeevan Sander, who's political economist at King's College in London. Dorney has been in touch uh, about that last topic. We're talking about inflation, interest rates, etc., pay rises. She says, Michelle, I had just bought my first house just before the late 70s, early 80s, when interest rates went up and up. I didn't ask for a pay rise. I tightened my belts, did without luxuries, bought second-hand furniture, etc., etc. It was the way that I was brought up. If I needed something, I had to save for it. She says it is not the government's job to look after us. Uh, Linda, and I have to say, Linda, a few people writing um, what I'm about to read out. Linda says, what hypocrites? Are the government and all the other MPs going to pay back their recent pay rises? Um, I don't know if I'd hold my breath on that one, would you? Anyway, uh, let's talk about, we've just been talking about wages. What about this job? This isn't bad, I tell you. £71,000 a year. Are you sitting at home thinking to yourself, ooh, that doesn't sound like a bad salary? Well, I've got a bit of good news and a little bit of bad news for you because if you think to yourself it was a good salary, up until about two days ago, there was a job that you could have applied that could earn you that if you wanted to be a deputy director of delivery for a Covid pass. A little bit of bad news, though, I've got to say, because uh, this was called out in the House of Commons a couple of days ago. Uh, Sajid Javid explained it away by saying he needs someone to work on the digital uh, resources. But given the backlash, hate to break it for you, put your CV away because the job is no longer advertised. Alan Miller, what's going on? Because I was hoping slash thinking we were reaching the end of all this COVID nonsense. So why then was this job advertised in the first place? People, some people are getting a little bit concerned about, you know, we talk about digital currencies this and passes this and some people will go about social credit systems in um, China, etc. What, what do you make of it all? Well, there's a number of things to break it down. The first thing is that uh, it was great for Sir Desmond Swain to call uh, Sajid Javid out about it and Sajid Javid was 
mumbling and erring. But the government does currently have a digital ID system that's implemented. It's uh, not mandatory, but it's for rent and landlords and for work. And uh, But we know, as with a demographic like older people who find it very difficult to do online banking and with apps and all of that, it's going to start meaning that some people can't participate. Now, the issue, the crucial issue is, is it going to be compulsory and how do we, do we have, does it have to be part of our society? Then there's another couple of questions that are linked to this, which is that the uh, European Union has a, a COVID pass. They've done a deal with Deutsche Telekom, uh, T-Systems. Uh, so 400 million people are going to have that within the EU. And the World Health Organization has also done a deal with Deutsche Telekom. So by default, we're going to probably need it to travel. Now, borders are different, right? So when you go away, you do do different things. However, we know that with the kind of policy creep that continues all the time, mm -hmm. that, that, that it's also that the NHS app has already been established to work with the EU. So you've got a situation by default that it's being set up. Uh, and Sajid Javid, I think, whether he knows or not, and he said various things and then come back on them and change his position, as we know, whether it's about mandates or a range of things, um, we've got a situation where increasingly, you know, the digital ID is becoming more and more part of our lives. Now, you mentioned central bank digital currencies. I think, you know, just to clarify this, if you look at on the one hand, what's happened in China with the social credit system, they're not as far as they want to be with that, but they obviously have other measures to control people, right? They don't have to just do it that way. But if you look at India with the Ardar project with 1.3 billion people on it, and in Mexico as well, digital surveillance, which is often excluding many people, it's often uh, used to monitor them, all of these things are a problem. So it's not the technology itself so much, but it's the use of it and the application. And that's why the Together Declaration had over 200,000 people that have signed to challenge having show me your papers in Britain. And we've sent a, a message to the government and to MPs uh, up and down the country that we're going to continue to be vigilant on this. We're not going to allow a situation where show me your papers exists in Britain. And we're going to fight against that. Ruth, where do you stand on Well, I, I sympathise with a lot of what Alan has said. And he obviously knows a lot more about it than I do. Um, but it, it was, I mean, it was, it, was a, it was a farce in the Commons. There was um, Sajid Javid going on about this £71,000 job when he said we didn't need it anymore and it was obsolete. And Peter Bone cried out, good old Peter Bone, scrap it! because Peter Bone's a sensible sort of chap. But um, I think what worries me is the hidden agenda of, of endless extra surveillance that you actually can't get through life without being... without with this surveillance. I find that really creepy. It's, it's sort of like, you know, it's like... Um, I don't know. It's Big Brother, isn't it? It's, it's horrible. Well, are you at home worried about this? Are you listening to what we're talking about and thinking, not for me? Or are you sitting there thinking, well, what's the problem? I don't get it. Jeevan, where do you stand? I actually have COVID amnesia. I completely forgot we had this pass. I completely forgot this was actually a thing. My assumption is, and I don't know this for sure, is that the reason why it was there was for travel, because I think then it's kind of used to be useful. But otherwise, I think this this age has ended, right? This age of the COVID pass has ended, and we should be glad about that. But, it, but this, is, but this is the point, though, because one might think and hope that it's ended, but if there is an active job role today, when I say today, by the way, I'm talking today loosely, what I mean is about 48 hours ago, so earlier this week, uh, so today, pretty much two days ago, there was a job that was advertising a lead, a digital lead for the COVID health pass. So if this has ended, if we're coming out the other side of it, then what on earth do you need to uh, uh, hire a new lead for this project for if you're not putting coal on the fire and staring it all up again? So my, look, I, I can't speak for the department. My assumption is it would have been for travel. But look, there's clearly consensus, I think, on this panel, I assume in the country as well, 
we're not going to go back to those NHS COVID passes. We're not going to have them. I don't think the public wants them. And also, like, look, the vaccines worked. Like, we are, thankfully, out of the worst pandemic. See, I admire your optimism, Jeevan. I'll give you that. Um, but I'm not sure it is as clear-cut as what Jeevan's saying, Alan. Like, he's saying we're not going to go back to these passes. You know, we're almost out of it. The vaccines were... I'm not sure about well, this. Well, let's just explore it a little bit deeper. Let's take the travel. And you do do things differently at borders. We have to show our passports. We allow our bags to be checked. Um, however, this, if it's just in the context of the vaccine that works, uh, you can still transmit it and get it. Uh, and therefore, why are you showing something about whether you've had it or not? It makes no sense. So we have a digital system that's being rolled out internationally, globally, to show something that doesn't actually stop you getting something or passing it on, and it only really protects you for a very short period of time. Now, that's great if it does protect you and stop you getting seriously ill, particularly highly vulnerable groups. However, why are we having a worldwide rollout of something that's done on that basis? That's a question. Now, we can only control what we can do domestically, but I would encourage everyone internationally, as we are, are doing, to challenge their uh, leaders domestically because we are seeing that there are institutions and, and organisations, groups like the uh, European Union, the World Health Organisation and others that are really pushing this strongly. And one would ask why, uh, you know, what are the benefits of it versus the risk? And the concerns around surveillance and monitoring uh, citizens' movement and the ability to say, well, a bit like uh, President Trudeau did with the Canadian truckers, well, you've not just the truckers, people who gave money towards uh, supporting them. Well, we don't like what you've done, so we're going to confiscate your bank account. So when you start having a situation like that where you can actually see what's going on and you've got central bank digital currencies where you can lock on and lock off very quickly anything, you can immediately shut things down. That's a very concerning moment for anyone who cares about freedom and democracy in society. And I think the key point, one of the key points that you've just raised there, and I, I don't think a lot of people quite grasp how bad this was. So the Canadian trucker thing, whatever you think to that, or you don't think to that, you know, whatever, each their own, almost irrelevant. You reach a situation where if you were a supporter of this campaign, and many people were, again, irrelevant what you think to that, if they decided to donate some money to help these truckers with their costs or whatever whilst they were protesting, they, we reached a situation, I say we, obviously I mean Canada, we reached a situation where the donor's bank account was frozen because the government of the day didn't agree with the cause of the truckers. And I mean, I almost want to pause for dramatic effect because I almost feel a little bit, because we've had such a terrible time over the last few years, People have not really grasped the enormity of little by little, inch by inch, by inch by inch by inch. And maybe I think I worry that perhaps people will go, well, I don't need to worry about that because that was in China. Or, or that, sorry, that was in Canada. I don't need to worry about the fact that they're locking people in their apartments over there because that one's in China. I don't need to worry about that because that's in New Zealand. And on and on, it goes an inch by inch and little by little. Just, I am worried can, about can some Can I of also this. just say this on this, because it's so important. We, uh, you can just see, perhaps, could you not, like we had COVID marshals and we had fines, where you have a situation where everyone's monitored and it's all on this system, and then all of a sudden, and I think it was Jeremy Hunt that encouraged the idea of looking people in their actual houses and saying that the Chinese model mm -hmm. was a good one. Yeah. And we're going to talk maybe about robots later on as well, but whether we do or don't, you can imagine a Robocop-type moment. But the idea that you're in breach of something, maybe not if you're in 10 Downing Street, but everywhere else. And so you've got... The thing about freedom and rights 
uh, and privacy is that it's always about fighting and ensuring they're there. We, we are the custodians of a very particular way of life that is not the same everywhere around the world. If we had this conversation in some countries, I might be rounded up afterwards and taken away. And those freedoms and the privacy and autonomy and choice that we've got, we have to uphold and maintain. And that's why the potential risk, it's not the technology, it's the potential risks and harms of the use of this and the execution of it. And they need, we need to vigilantly defend it. I'd encourage everyone to support the Together Declaration, but actually let your MPs know and make your voices heard, because we've shown we can have an impact on this. I'm well, afraid I... lockdown was a terrible precedent. Yeah, and actually, I don't know if you will have noticed today, precedent. by the way, there was a big um, headline, I think it was in the Mail Online, where it was about saying that there's been this... Uh, I shouldn't laugh, because, you know, it will be very serious to many, but um, when they were saying that there's been this kind of increment in COVID cases, that's the headline, you've got this big map now, so you can go on, put your postcode in, find out how many people are infected near where you are, and all this and all that and all the other. It's like, hang on a second, because actually, when you drill down into the details, this was based on a survey, uh, it was based on the backdrop of... A declining uh, in COVID cases in the first place. When you look at the so-called increment, some uh, professional statisticians would argue that it was within the margin of error anyway. Mm -hmm. And I worry, my worry in all of this is that we're almost balancing on the edge of hysteria again. Yes, Stephen, we might have kind of come out of the COVID thing, but it's only, it's still there. It's kind of just bubbling under the surface. We've got conversations about monkeypox, haven't we? And then headlines like that today. So, yes, I worry about this. Do you? Uh, Alan says, we resoundingly refused ID cards many, many years ago, Michelle. This, in his mind, is the same. By stealth, he says, no, no, no. And he puts all of the no's in capitals just to land that point. Jane says, thank goodness for the Together Declaration and GB News. Lots of uh, sentiment coming through, agreeing with you on that one, Alan. <laughs>
this subject was actually discussed. And I remember what I said then, and I've not changed my mind, that this was a sort of a last resort deterrence policy to stop the traffickers from bringing in these large numbers of economic migrants. They're not necessarily refugees. These are economic migrants. And it's a, one way of trying to stop the traffickers. They've tried talking to the traffickers nicely, they've tried talking to the French nicely, but it doesn't work. So it's a sort of last resort policy, and I defended it on those grounds, and I still do. Uh, the second thing I would say is that, of course, the, the Priti Patel at the Home Office knew perfectly well that there would be a lot of legal challenges to this policy of sending people off to Rwanda. And so it has happened. And the $100 question now is, how does the government actually cope, cope with all the legal challenges to sending people to Rwanda? One hopes that they've got enough fire in their belly to actually do something about it. I support this policy because it's a last resort deterrence policy. Stephen, do you agree? Uh, no, I don't. It's a shameful policy and it also won't work. Let's be clear, 70% of those crossing the channel come from Iran, Iraq, Syria, Sudan and Vietnam. These are not economic migrants. The reason why they cross the channel is because there is no safe and legal route to apply for asylum. Those who do come here, 60% of them have their asylum applications approved. One man here, also a Syrian person who fled Syria to come to this country. Now, first of all, people who flee war zones, 86% of them stay in a neighbouring nation. Why do they come to the UK? Because they have a connection here. This Syrian man, two of his sisters in the United Kingdom. If you have fled a war zone, you would flee to the place where you had family and you had connections. That's why they come here. That's why they risk the channel. And there is no way for them to apply for asylum inside of France. So where I absolutely agree with you, by the way, is I think that this country needs to reflect on its asylum policies mm. um, and make sure that there are effective, efficient, safe routes for people that want to properly apply for asylum, uh, that are in danger or at risk or whatever you call it. We need better policies and processes for those people. So I'm completely mm. in alignment with you there. And I think we fail at that right now. But come on now, Jeevan. When you look at these pictures, when you look at this data, do you not think that... I'll be generous and say some. I'd probably more realistically want to say the majority. But do you not think that at least some, if not the majority of these people, are coming to this country from France, which is a relatively safe place. If you're freeing a war zone, you're already safe. Because of economic development reasons. They want to better their life economically, which I don't resent, by the way. Who wouldn't? Who, who if, with a, you know, with your hand on your heart at home, who would not want to economically develop themselves? I'm not knocking that, by the way. But I just think that we're not being realistic with what we're describing this as. Well, look at, again, look at the numbers. 86% stay in a neighbouring country. But I'm not talking those, about that. Right, so I'm, I'm talking about the people that get on a channel. boat in France yes. and come to the UK because they want to be put up in hotels, etc. I'm talking about them. Yeah, I think of those people there, we know that 70% of them are from Iraq, Iran, Syria, How Sudan, you know that? and Vietnam. Because they're discarded of their Because they, they do check. And also, look, this is why people cross. People who work with migrants say this is why they come to this country. They come here for family ties, and sometimes they also have ties in terms <coughs> of the language. In terms of otherwise, you're an economic migrant. We know how hard life is in this country for migrants. We've seen that with the Windrush scandal. We're seeing it now with this policy as well. This is not a country that is exactly warm and welcoming and opening to those people. I'm this gonna... is not the place to be if you want to earn a In a, a second, a good I'm going to bring um, Alan in because I know he's got an interesting take on this. But I just want to push back on you again, if I may. Because anyone who wants to come to this country, you know, and I think of the city that I'm in, 
uh, from sorry Hull. And I can think of multiple hotels. There's a huge uh, controversy at the moment around the student accommodation, a place called Cottingham, it's called, mm. uh, that these people are being placed in. And I will ask you, you're saying, of course you'd want to come where your family is. Of course you'd want to do this. Of course you'd want to do that. Do you not concede at all that actually there will be people now that understand that there is a system here to be played that if you can get on this boat, spend a couple of grand or whatever it is that you need to do to get on this boat, that what will wait for you at the end will be a nice hotel, will be money, will be uh, expensive legal aid paid for. Do you not think that there will be people that will play that system? First of all, legal aid in this country has been cut to the bone. There won't be much legal aid for them. But would you risk... Uh, dying in the channel. We've already seen, of course, one boat being sunk. And I, I don't accept that actually you, know, you and I would not make this decision. You know, you and I would not do that. Why not think that they also act and react in the way that people have been their best interest? People are smart, I right? And they're not going to play this game. I will, I will, uh, I could ping pong with you all day, but that's not fair to the other people on the channel because I would push back and say that a lot of these crossings, uh, they've done when the seas are very calm, when the channel is very calm. They're not crossing the channel because they're picked up halfway through and escorted nice and safely to the UK. So I don't think it's as treacherous. That's notwithstanding, I understand that there have been awful, inhumane, devastating tragedies. But I just find it, I'm struggling to understand, or I'm struggling to con comprehend that you don't think that there's any possibility that people are playing the system here. But the people who work in this, people we speak to, the people who are involved with this, and the numbers tell us that actually in the vast, vast majority of cases, this is what is going on. They're coming because you have a family tie and there's no right to apply outside I've either. got to be honest and I'll agree to disagree because unfortunately it doesn't wash with me a lot of what's been said. Um, and for the interest of bringing in Alan, because I know you've got an interesting well, take on it. I Alan. think it's really great. So I think we have to have more conversations like this, that you do it in a civil way, we do it in a way that have very different views and that we can actually thrash them out because the country needs to do it. And there's so many different things to say. Firstly, I think Britain is a very welcoming country. Uh, I think we've, over the last three decades, things have been transformed. And if you look at all of the polling that was done during Brexit and all of that, it demonstrated that. The other thing I'm going to say is people shouldn't be so defensive about economic migrants. Uh, if you look at America, America was transformed through economic migrants. And actually, even those that are illegal that come in, they've got a path to actually becoming citizens. However, people are also rightly concerned in this country about resources and allocation of them and what that means. And I think that's about having a big open public discussion about how the best allocation of resources can be there, how we can transform those resources to make them better, what role migrants play within that. Often, I think, they just radically transform it in a beneficial way. But we need to convince ordinary people, or I would say that I would try and convince people in uh, towns that don't have uh, industry and development that are very concerned. And there's a cultural conversation that people are petrified of having, right, about what it means to be British. Let's have a discussion about British values, about freedom, democracy, all the things we've been talking about earlier. The people are then terrified they'll be called racist if you start asserting them and saying, I want to have that conversation, which is utterly the opposite of racism as it happens. It's about a universal aspiration towards freedom and, and, and equality and rights. And I think the thing is this, that the other thing is we should encourage development in other countries. But as you say, quite rightly, some of these have come from war zones. I don't think they're all just economic migrants. I personally think that... Um, you know, one of the reasons why the shake-up in northern Maghreb, in northern Africa and Libya and elsewhere was because of Western intervention and wars created there, as it happens, backing it, supporting them. We've seen terrible devastation there, people then leaving. Also, a, a hogpotch of things in Syria, that's all true. But 
it is the case that you need borders and you need to have control and we need to have a democratic discussion. Now, the government does have a mandate on this issue as it happens, right? They, they may, I mean, one thing has got to be said, that people in Britain are concerned about these things. So I think we need to have more of a robust discussion. I happen to think gimmick is the wrong term. I happen to think it's one of those things that's a bit more PR and it's a bit more... And it's going to be tied up in all sorts of lawsuits, as we know. But there's still a central... The two key central questions we have to have is... Are we all Malthusians, where we believe that more people coming suddenly takes away all our resources, which is what the green argument is, and I'm not. I believe that more people, more intellectual, more brain can benefit everyone. Um, and how do we organise resources on that basis? And also, therefore, should we make these distinctions or we should work out a way that we can accommodate people, but we're not afraid to have the discussion and then be called names mm. uh, because we want to have a discussion about resources? If I may, I do agree with you about this country's approach or the way they welcome migrants is certainly very positive. I know I've never felt like I'm not British. I know how proud I am of this country. I think this country is better to migrants than this government is. I also think this country's greatest moment was in the Second World War. My grandfather served in those armed forces. I'm sure people's family members at home. And part of that as well was the kinder transport. We should remember that when thousands of German children were taken in and given the horrors that took place in Berlin when the Soviets came in, certainly saved them from a huge amount of horrific actions. And I'm really proud of that moment. And I think we should continue that legacy today. You can't get away from the fact, you said it, um, Alan, that the, the government has a mandate to try and control the borders and try and control illegal illegal migrants coming to this country. And as far as I'm concerned, that as a, is what it is trying to do with this, what I call, last resort deterrence policy. Yeah. And that's why I support it. And what I find fascinating about all of this is there's so much criticism. I'll read you some criticism, actually, because it's not just from uh, people in public office, etc., that criticise this. Uh, I don't know if you saw this yesterday. The ice cream company, Ben & Jerry's, they've got involved. <laughs> Uh, they was on busy on Twitter, I think it was a day or so ago, a couple of days ago. They said, listen up, folks, because we need to talk about Pretty Patel's ugly Rwanda plan and what this means. Uh, it's gone on and on. It was a very long thread, by the way. Uh, it's basically, they're not pulling any punches. They feel very strongly about it, and that in itself has divided people. But I want to give you uh, the final word on this, Jeevan. Uh, I have incredibly strong views about this. I think what's happening right now is absolutely appalling <laughs> and I find it fascinating that everybody's saying how awful it is but no one's giving any real solutions as to what we should do so we all agree mm -hmm. that yes they should be longer term better effective routes and efficient we absolutely agree with that but in the here and now when those things don't exist what do you do I think those safe and legal routes and those safe and legal applications there should be a way to apply for asylum outside but you're not inside the United Kingdom because that's why the risk but, is but being we made. agree but then that's not, that's not there now. So what would you do to stop people getting onto those boats and doing what they're currently doing? But then I suppose you're asking me, like, if I was the government, I would have a safe and legal route. If I was the government, I wouldn't be doing this, right? That is an option available to the government. The government can absolutely do that if they want to. Mm. And they must control the borders. Can I just throw one little thing in here as well? That whilst people like Ben and Joe's and others, they're entitled to say what they want, I think everyone should Absolutely. say what they want. They might be surprised by some of the reaction. We should remember, everyone's gone very silent about the EU's policies on, on exporting out this. They, they've got to deal with uh, Libyan coast guards where they prevent people coming into fortress Europe. So allegedly, the EU, which is a welcoming place for everyone, similarly, they did a deal with Turkey, mm. uh, with Syrian uh, uh, migrants. So the whole idea that this is just an aberration... That, and and everyone's very silent about the EU. If, you get, if it's good for the goose, let it be good for the gander. 
Um, I, I just think that bit is interesting that no one's really made that much noise about the EU's ongoing policy, which have resulted in many deaths off the coast of Italy and elsewhere. Well, there you go. You guys are not backwards in coming forwards uh, when you're telling me your thoughts. I have to say, a lot of you are in agreement with what the government is doing. I have to say, I've also had some people that agree with you, Jeevan, and say that it is wrong. I'll leave you to ponder where, what you think about it, and we, I'm sure we'll be talking about this again, because apparently this is all going to happen next week. Is it? Really? Anyway, that's all we've got time for. Alan, Ruth, Jeevan, thank you very much for your time, for your company, for your strong opinions. And thank you as well at home for your thoughts. Have yourself a fantastic weekend and I will see you on Monday. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.